This podcast is brought to you by Bruner Communications, your best resource for public speaking, presentation, and storytelling skills. Visit lizbruner.com and take your skills to the next level. Having survived a traumatic upbringing, as well as a near-fatal suicide attempt, my guest has gone from her deepest, darkest days of hating life to thriving in the business world to living her best, most fullest life. And it all happened through learning to love herself. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Live Your Best Life with Liz Bruner. I'm Liz, and today my guest is going to help us break the myth that self-love is selfish. Jenna Banks, welcome to my podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Liz. I'm really excited to be here with you today. I'm delighted to have you. Jenna is an entrepreneur, a real estate investor, speaker, and now first-time author of the book, I Love Me More, How to Find Happiness and Success Through Self-Love. Congratulations. And I know you just shared with me that this weekend was your launch party. You must be so excited. Oh my gosh. It's really hard to describe the feeling, although I know You must have gone through something similar, Liz, since your book came out last year as well. But yeah, it's like a feeling like no other. Absolutely. It's really wonderful. This book is described as a guidebook about how to go about loving ourselves and focuses on crushing myths that we have about how we should relate to ourselves. So let's bust myth number one, that (laughs) self-love is selfish. Explain that one. That's a big one. You know, it really surprised me when I decided to go down the path of writing this book in the first place that most women, I discovered through research that most women have this, what they call a fear of selfishness syndrome. And this is something referenced often by uh, therapists, psychotherapists, um, psychologists, et cetera, that this is one of the biggest inhibitors uh, of self-love for women, especially because we worry that putting ourselves first and making our happiness our our priority and loving ourselves fully would be selfish or narcissistic. That prevents us from even thinking about going down that path in the first place. So I knew I had to address this issue right away, right when I first got into the book. Otherwise, everything would sound like, uh, what's that character on Charlie Brown? (laughs) (laughs) Right? Yes. Well, I had the chance to read your book over the weekend, and you're so real and so authentic in sharing your personal story and journey. And you admit that you never considered yourself a writer, that you went through this arduous battle while writing it, and yet felt so compelled to write it at the same time. Why did you feel compelled, and why was it so challenging to write? I was compelled to write it because just from sharing some of my own stories in my personal friend group, I saw the difference that it made in their lives of how I put myself first and chose my happiness and how that always led me right. And that's what inspired me. I thought if I can touch people within my own small circle, man, I really want to do that. If I can reach a broader audience and help more women, that's my purpose. That's what I felt like was my passion and my purpose really in life because I'd experienced all this business success and other success, but I hadn't really felt like I found my my true mission here on mm-hmm. earth, if you mm-hmm. will. You know, it's one thing to experience personal success. It's another thing to really just feel like you're giving back in a big way. And that really is what inspired me to write the book in the first place. Now, when I started going down the journey of writing the book, you better bet you what they call imposter syndrome crept up. 
I'm glad you're bringing this up because it's really, I think it's really important for people to understand that when you're trying something new, like I was in writing this book I'd never written before. And like I talk a lot about, I only have a GED for an education. Who am I to write a book, right? I didn't take writing courses. Who's going to listen to me? Um, I'm just, you know, a girl who had a traumatic history and overcame it. But there's so many other people who can write so much better than me. And I think that's a trap that a lot of us fall into is comparing ourselves to others. In that comparison, we lose sight of who we are and, and the, the value of what we as individuals bring to the table. There's truly no one like us. We're so unique and we need to embrace that uniqueness and understand that we're here for a reason and we'll connect with different people differently. There could be a million people out there talking about self-love, but we're all going to talk about it differently. And what person may say or how they may get the point across might be different for one person than another. Someone else might connect with me more because I have a GED, right? So actually what I saw as a potential weakness could actually be a strength in that maybe those people who can relate, the the message would get through more clearer to them. Mm -hmm. I had to get over that. You mentioned your traumatic upbringing and your parents divorced when you were a toddler. Your father Mm -hmm. remarries, has four more children, and you were raised by him and your stepmom. And you write about growing up in a very strict religious family, never questioning the word of the Bible. In fact, even watching Scooby-Doo cartoons warranted prayers of forgiveness. Yeah. How did that impact you? I felt truly oppressed. I did. I, I just felt like I couldn't be myself. You know, I couldn't be this person I am today, which is truly authentically me. And it just felt like I was in prison. It really did. And that's what prompted me to get out of there at a very young age. I was only 14, but I thought anything could be better. It has to be better than this. I'd rather jump into the unknown than deal with this oppression because I was starting to probably go down the path of my suicidal tendencies, which came a little bit later on in my teen years. But you know, just not being able to be myself and Mm -hmm. know who I am. And of course, not loving myself, right? Not valuing myself, not being valued for who I was as an individual. I didn't realize at the time that was really part of the oppressive feeling that I had. Mm -hmm. It was tough. It was really tough. Well, so many childhood experiences for all of us shape us. And in your case, you write about them shaping you in terms of believing that you had no value. And you talk about you know, being powerless and sitting alone, waiting to get spanked and dishes broken and just wondering, is tomorrow going to be as bad as today? And you just mentioned that at age 14 was when you first left home and you you actually went to your dad and said, you don't want to be here anymore. And he says to you, okay, if that's what you want. And he sends you to go talk to the pastor. And then Mm -hmm. the pastor says, you have a demon just like your mother. Yeah. Do you remember your emotional reaction to the pastor's comment? I remember that moment pretty clearly. It felt like a betrayal. Mm-hmm. It felt like this one person maybe could be this third party to see things a little differently. And he was just, you know, making it worse, really, basically giving my father the ammo that he really needed to be like, yeah, she's the devil child. Mm-hmm. Better if she's not here anyway. So you move, you decide to move, you leave. And you go Mm -hmm. to California to live with your mom. Now you went to completely opposite sort of lifestyle where there were no rules, no structure. And you admit that you became numb and that that is when you actually first attempted suicide. And you you felt proud of slitting your wrists. You were hell-bent on dying. 
I'm trying to wrap my head around that. Talk us through a little bit about that. You know, the, where the numbness came from was my mother was not physically abusive, but mentally abusive. So mm. I think the most damage to my psychological state of mind actually happened at my mother's house, oddly, from the ages of 14 to 16. Because like you, you said, I, there was no, it was like the complete opposite, but there was also just zero concern of anything. No mm. concern about what was happening in my life. I could come and go as I pleased. I could not come home at all. And that was fine with her. Where the trouble would happen is if I impacted her life in any way, like got in her way. So we lived, mm. she lived in a small one bedroom apartment. I was sleeping on the couch. I would come home. If there were too many messages on the answering machine, I would get a really nasty letter that would just really intend to like inflict mental, emotional wounds on me. And it did that. And I would cry myself to sleep almost every night, you know, and I would just think, I really wanted to please her. I would try my best. You know, I remember buying some little porcelain figurines for her for her birthday one year. And she, um, in one of her rages, broke every single one of them. And in one of her nasty letters said it was the worst gift she's ever received. And, you know, I'm just a terrible person and blah, blah, blah. And I think it was because I had too many messages on the answering machine. I mean, she just didn't want her life to be impacted by me in any way. And, you know, it did a lot of emotional damage. So, yeah, I was really numb when I left her house at 16. And I became suicidal after that. She had kicked me out so many times. I mean, I can't even imagine, you know, I'm a mother. I have a, an almost 28-year-old son kicking a child out and lo locking the doors, having no way for them to contact you mm. at that age and what that would do to them psychologically. That happened to me frequently. Mm. I would have to go stay with friends, even guys I was dating who were out of high school, way too old for me. I mean, now I have to go stay with them because I'm on the street now I'm giving my body away, a way too young of an age, but you know, it was all about survival at that point. It's also getting the, the porcelain gifts for your mother. What you were seeking was love. And you write that for a long time, you didn't know what love was, let alone self-love. And it was your grandmother who first taught you about love. How differently did she treat you that you knew that that was love? She didn't show me the, the what you would think the typical version of love would be like the touchy-feely, huggy, warm grandma making cookies. It wasn't that kind of a love. It was the concern for my well-being love. It was the, oh my gosh, she can't see very well. She needs glasses. And then she bought, she paid for my glasses. My teeth were quite crooked. She paid for my braces. You know, she would come visit frequently or have me stay with them for the summers when I was a kid. It was concern for my well-being and it truly felt like unconditional love. It was the only person who ever showed me what that felt like, mm -hmm. regardless of how other family members might have felt about her or she you know, was very forthright, very controlling person. But I kind of loved that about her. Mm -hmm. I loved that you know, she was my safety. You mentioned your son a moment ago. And when you first got pregnant, you ended up marrying the father. You moved to Holland. And you've written that having your son saved your life. 100%. How so? We talked about earlier, I was suicidal. Um, that started, you know, in my teen years. And my last attempt, I it was almost successful. I ended up in the hospital in a coma for many days because I'd taken a whole bottle of pills that would have successfully killed me had someone not found me and taken me and called 911. But, you know, after that, I was working kind of focused on work and I met this guy from Holland. And once I got pregnant, what you would think would be just, oh my God, here we are, 19 years old, pregnant. How much worse <laughs> can it get? 
But it actually saved my life. The emotions that, you know, we talked about me being numb. Well, this was the antidote to that. All the hormones from Mm -hmm. pregnancy turned on and I could not shut it off. It was crying. I was crying for no reason, which I hadn't cried for years. It was happy, sad, good, bad, all the things that I wanted to die because of, you know, not feeling. I didn't feel anything before. And so now I was able to feel and that really changed everything. And then, of course, giving me a reason to succeed and provide, you know, now that I was responsible for somebody else, that just changed my focus, of course. It changed everything for me. Mm-hmm. You've mentioned your high school equivalency diploma, your GED. And being armed with this, you, you thrive in the business world. And you're producing marketing products for major movie studios in Los Angeles. You're working in a toy and games industry with brands such as Hasbro, Mattel, and even Lego. And yet you trusted your instincts, Jenna, to leave your six-figure corporate job and become an entrepreneur. What gave you the courage to do that? You know, I talk about this in my book about trusting your instincts. Because I didn't have family around me, because yes, my grandmother was in my life, but it was long distance. It was on the phone. You know, she was, didn't live near me at all. And so I really had to kind of figure things out on my own. And I learned to tune into my instincts. My instincts were very strong. And there was a point in time, well, yes, I was kind of in these golden handcuffs. I'd been at a company for many years in the toy and games industry and making really good money, but I was unhappy. I just knew it it was just a feeling of just a lack of, I call it my power container, uh, which my (laughs) power container was just it was on empty. I was operating from this very empty container. That's really what drove me to leave. I didn't have a backup job. I I wasn't interviewing yet. I didn't know what I was going to do, but I knew I had to quit. And I just trusted that call to quit. And you know how I knew it was right? I felt good about it. I felt really good about the decision. And I want to encourage everyone, you know, if you're ever doing anything scary, like making a big decision like that, and your, your heart's telling you to do it, you know what is right when right away you feel really good once you've made that decision. And that, that was my compass. I learned to follow that compass of leading me to my happiness, trusting my intuition, following my happiness, making that my priority. And it never led me wrong. I trusted it 100%. If I didn't do that, I wouldn't have started my business that I sold you know, for half a million dollars. Seven years later, I started a real estate venture started doing real estate investments, um, buying property that I rented out. I've traveled all over the world, met tons of friends because I was able to move across the country and to a a more affordable city. Literally, my life totally changed for the better by trusting my instinct. Mm. So that was a pivotal moment. Trusting our instincts is hard, but it is so pivotal. This has really been a journey of self-loathing to self-loving. Really important. In your book, I Love Me More, you regularly talk about practicing self-love is like taking a vitamin. I love that analogy because (laughs) it brings energy and joy into your life. But let's be real, Jenna, practicing self-love doesn't always feel good at the onset. So how do we get past that hard part? (laughs) I think a lot of people have confused self-care with self-love because the work I've been doing, I've noticed there's a lot of that. Self-care is equally as important. It's really important to to take care of yourself. But self-love is quite different. Self-care is like going to the spa, taking a walk, putting energy into your health and well-being. It's all that external stuff, right? Getting your hair done, like making yourself feel good on the outside. Well, doing that on the outside makes you feel good on the inside. But self-love, on the other hand, can be very uncomfortable sometimes. 
It could mean that choosing yourself and putting yourself as your priority, it might feel uncomfortable. This guilt might come in. Mom guilt especially can come Mm -hmm. in. And it's uncomfortable to move past that and go, oh, okay, I'm going to keep putting myself first. I'm going to keep making my happiness my priority. I'm going to make myself my number one priority. It's going to feel really weird and uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. It's Mm -hmm. also going to hurt sometimes. Like I use examples in the book of like me breaking my own heart and leading toxic relationships. You have to sometimes go through the discomfort and the pain of detaching from relationships that you've become very attached to, but you know that they're not serving you and they're Mm -hmm. not you know, making you happy. So yeah, sometimes it can be really uncomfortable. But on the other side, you get your power. You, you fill up what I like to call the power container. You feel full of your own love or your own power and you start to feel powerful as in full of your own power. And it feels phenomenal. And so that's how you know you're on the right track is when you're in this place of feeling powerful. Well, self-love really is not settling for less than what you deserve. And one of the quotes that you have in the book, you state that self-love is not something we are born with, but rather something we must work toward. We must choose it on a daily basis, and it is the source of all things. How will your book help us choose self-love on a daily basis? What I do is I try to make it a really practical guide. I'm a practical person. There's not any fluff in there. I promise you that. There's not. I know. I've read it. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, And I did that intentionally because I personally don't like reading books that have a lot of fluff. I want to get to the good stuff. And so I try to make it chock full of practical ways you can practice self-love in your daily life. One of the biggest areas I personally had to battle with for years is boundaries, for example. Yes. And our boundaries are being tested constantly. They can be tested at work. They can be tested at home with the kids, with the partner. They can be tested by absolute strangers, which I also go into the, at the book. But how we stand up for ourselves and how we honor ourselves and protect our boundaries sets the tone for how others treat us. Mm-hmm. It all starts with self. It starts with self-respect, self-value, self-compassion, self-forgiveness. The more that we can give these things to ourselves, the more we can give them to others. It's actually Mm -hmm. such a beneficial thing for everyone. So I try to give just practical guidance on how to do this and how to practice it on a daily basis. And it's not easy. It takes this conscious practice every single day, but at some point it will get easier, but it takes a (laughs) while. You are now an author, a speaker, you have your own show and podcast, I might add, and you are a successful entrepreneur having survived all that you've been through. Well, I call that living your best life. What would you want to tell your younger self if you could? And what would you like to tell our listeners around the world who may be struggling with self-love? One of the things I would definitely tell myself is don't look to others to validate what you do. Just validate yourself. I think a lot of us get caught up in working hard for what? What are we working so hard for? To have the fancy cars, the, the fancy purses, the you know all these other things that are outside of ourselves. But I can promise you that that does not what really brings true happiness. It is when you validate yourself and you do what pleases you, truly what pleases you, not to impress others, <laughs> is really buying that purse going to please you or is investing in yourself and saying, I'm worth it enough to go take this really expensive course that I've always wanted to take. 
or that I'm worth it to say, you know what, I'm going to quit this job. It's not serving me. I'm not Mm -hmm. feeling valued here. It's doing the things that you want for yourself, validating yourself. And that's all that matters. It's not about what this world is trying to tell you you should get or achieve or have or do to impress others. It's about how you truly feel. And there's, there's no one to look to for that information, just yourself. And we have to give ourselves permission to self-love. Yeah. We really do. Yeah. If you would like to learn more about Jenna's book, I Love Me More, and her work, go to her website. It's jenna-banks.com. That's J-E-N-N-A hyphen banks, which is spelled B-A-N-K-S dot com, jennabanks.com. Jenna, thank you for being my guest today and for sharing your story with the world and reminding us that the most important relationship we will ever have is the one we have with ourselves. It's been great to have this conversation with you. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Liz. And thank you for listening. I invite you to subscribe, comment on the show, and share it with your friends. May Jenna's story help all of us to embrace our value and our power and live our best life. Until next time, be well. This podcast is brought to you in part by Fast Twitch Media, helping people tell their stories and giving them worldwide reach. The future is in the cloud, and Fast Twitch Media can take you there. Be your best digital self. Check out fasttwitchmedia.space.